invite you to turn in your Bibles to Jude, the book of Jude, nearly at the end of the Bible, right before Revelation. In our high school Sunday school, we've been studying 2 Peter and Jude for just shy of a year. And as we've studied it, I've thought on many occasions, this would be a great message to preach. So for this morning's time in God's word, I've chosen to focus on Jude verses eight through 13. For those of you not familiar with these epistles, Second Peter and Jude have a lot of similarities and so they're often studied together. We'll look at Second Peter a couple times this morning, but our focus will be Jude eight through 13. As you turn in your Bibles there, I'd invite you to join me in standing for the reading of God's word, Jude, verses 8 through 13. If you're able, join us in standing. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walk in the way of Cain and abandon themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Let's pray together. Lord God, our creator and sustainer, our master and our savior, we gather before you as your sheep, as your children, and we come in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Help us to understand our dependence upon you. Help us to know the right and proper place of submission to you. And I pray that you would guard us both from those who would creep into our fellowship with destructive lies and guard us too from our own sinful hearts, which would lead us away from godliness to become grumblers, malcontents, and loudmouth boasters. May we receive your word now in meekness, being built up in our most holy faith through the Holy Spirit, and in the name of Jesus Christ we pray, amen. You may be seated. The book of Jude is written by the brother of the Apostle James, 
and thus also the half-brother of Jesus. He doesn't write to an individual church, but he writes to those who are called. And he tells his audience plainly in verse three, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. That's the purpose of his epistle, to charge us to contend for the faith. And that's the focus of our message this morning, that we must contend for the faith, but probably not in the way that you would expect. This is not a message about apologetics. It is not a message on how to defend the faith against atheists, but rather you see what we need to contend for in verse four. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Jude's concern is that these certain people have already crept in. They're already among us and they have gone unnoticed. And so he details what these certain people are like, what their behavior is like, what their motives are like, and what the Lord will do to them so that we contend for the faith by noticing the unnoticed and by avoiding becoming like them ourselves. In verses five through seven, Jude reminds his readers that the Lord destroyed the very Israelites he saved out of Egypt. And he did it because they did not believe. And he is keeping in chains until the great judgment angels who didn't keep their proper place and Sodom and Gomorrah who indulged in sexual immorality are still undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Whether men or angels, whether those with God's word or without, whether those among God's people or outside of God's people, God punishes the unrighteous. And that brings us to verse eight. In these verses, eight through 13, June explains the character of these certain people who have crept in unnoticed. He marks these people out and he paints a portrait of their wickedness for two reasons, that we might learn to notice the unnoticed and that we might not become like them ourselves. In verse eight, he says, yet in like manner, these people also relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority and blaspheme the glorious ones. Yet in like manner, these people also points back to what he just said in verse five, five through seven about the Israelites who didn't believe, the angels who didn't stay in their proper place and Sodom and Gomorrah who indulged in immorality. Despite the well-established fact that the Lord punishes such behavior severely, these people who have crept in unnoticed behave in the same way. 
They behave just like the Israelites who didn't believe. They behave just like the angels who did not keep their proper place. And they behave just like Sodom and Gomorrah in their immorality. And here we see the first distinguishing mark of these ungodly people. Number one, these people rely on themselves. They rely on themselves. Jude says what these people do, they do by relying on their dreams. Now, there's no prohibition biblically against dreaming. That's good news. Many of us dream, some of us more vividly than others. And in fact, there is biblical uh, precedent that dreams are used by God to direct his people in ways they wouldn't otherwise know. The problem isn't the dreaming. The problem is the authority that they give to their dreams. So if I have a dream that Matt Krogman is in need of a new car, I'm free to buy him a new car or give him my own if I believe that the dream is from the Lord. That's great. Nothing wrong with that. No one would complain about that kind of dream. But if I have a dream that Matt's going to give me his car, (laughs) that doesn't give me the license to go take it from him. And if I go to him and tell him about my dream, he'd do well to ask, are you sure it's not the case that you just want my car? These people dream and they use that as a justification to defile the flesh, to reject authority, and to blaspheme the glorious ones. What kind of a dream does that? The kind of dream that can't be questioned or challenged. The kind of dream that recognizes no authority. A private dream, a private revelation from God that magically lets you do whatever you want to do. The reality is these people rely on themselves and look at what they overturn with their supposed dreams. A, God's law is clear, but they defile the flesh based on themselves, on their own opinions, on their own dreams. They defile the flesh even though God's law is clear regarding such things. They use their dreams to defile the flesh, to corrupt the flesh through practices that God forbids. That ties back to Sodom and Gomorrah who indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire. And it also goes back to the initial description of these people in verse 4, who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. They use God's grace to practice what he has forbidden, and they corrupt and defile the flesh. So even though God's law is clear in regard to what is good and right in sexuality and what practices are forbidden and corrupt, They know better than God because they had a dream and so they defile the flesh. It's not difficult to see how this applies in our society. We've swept away any notion of God's design and law in sexuality and we do whatever is right in our own eyes. God condemns fornication but our schools and the media encourage it. 
God hates divorce, but we cheer it on as if it's necessary and good if that's what it takes for you to discover yourself. God says the practice of homosexuality is an abomination, and yet we have made it our source of pride. God warns us that our lusts, the lusts in our own hearts will destroy us, and yet all around we stir them up and we remove every obstacle to their growth. On what basis do we cast off God's law and defile the flesh? On the basis of our dream, the dream of a free society, the dream of individual autonomy, Because we rely on ourselves, because we rely on our own opinions and our own desires. And when God's law collides with our own opinion, we find out who's really God. We set his law aside and we establish ourselves as supreme. And with that sort of self-reliance, it's not difficult to see how it leads to the second point. God's structure is clear, but they reject authority. They reject authority. They cast aside any authority that contradicts what they want. God has structured his universe with clear bounds of authority, with a beautiful and interwoven complex hierarchy. But these people reject any authority that doesn't serve their ends. This is at the heart of noticing the unnoticed. So I think it's worth taking a few minutes to unpack this. People who reject all authority don't last long. So how is it that these people just reject, blanket, reject authority? If you reject all authority, you're not gonna survive long. Autonomous zones, which claim independence from all authority, become dens of the most vicious form of authority. Defunding the police does not end up with less authority. Defunding the police leaves us with the raw power of warlords and mobs, merciless authority. Those who deny authority can't do it by denying any form of authority. It wouldn't last. But power and authority are realities that we can't ignore without lasting consequences. So what does Jude mean? They reject authority. Remember, these people crept in unnoticed. And anarchists are not subtle. Anarchists can't creep into the church. They stick out like a sore thumb. So what does he mean that they reject authority? These people reject authority when they don't have it, and they reject authority that contradicts their own desires. They reject authority not by disobeying every rule and every ruler, but by disobeying the rule or ruler that disagrees with them. I hardly need to mention the rampant rejection of authority in our society. Democracies seem particularly prone to this vice, partly because we have a part in establishing our leaders, but I think this pernicious behavior is far more insidious in the church. 
When we follow our authorities only when we agree with them, only when we understand and affirm their reasoning, then we actually reject authority. If the elders told me that I was getting a bonus this month, I could be a complete rebel and accept that bonus with thanksgiving. But if the elders told me I was henceforth in charge of providing snacks for all the women's Bible studies, then you'd find out whether or not I accepted their authority or not. It is not when we get what we want that we know if we're submitting to authority. It's when that authority tells us something that we don't understand or we don't like. That's when we find out whether or not we accept authority. So we need to examine our own lives. Children to your parents, wives to your husbands, members to your elders, citizens to our cities, states, counties, nations, when you disagree with someone who has authority, what is your disposition? We'll leave aside the questions of who really has authority and what to do when authorities disagree with each other. Let's leave the complex questions aside. But when a legitimate authority directs you contrary to your own inclinations, how do you respond? How do you respond? Christ Jesus was once given a command by his authority that he did not understand, that he did not want to fulfill. And he said, not my will, but yours be done. These ungodly people say, my will be done. And they reject authority. That kind of person and that kind of attitude can creep in unnoticed but we need to mark it out as deadly. Third, God's power is clear, but they revile the glorious ones. They revile the glorious ones. Now the word here is blasphemy or blaspheme, but I, in my experience, find most people only have a vague idea of what blasphemy means. To blaspheme is to speak negatively without due respect. That's pretty well captured in the word revile. And that's what I've chosen to call it. These people revile the glorious ones. Now in this context, the glorious ones probably refers to angels. But it's not clear in what context people would go about reviling angels. We won't spend any time sorting that out, but consider the implications of this pride. Their pride leads them to see themselves as the ultimate authority. They rely on themselves and it leads them to be so confident, so self-assured that they don't even show respect to beings of glory and honor. This behavior too is characteristic of our age People revile anyone who disagrees with them today. Nothing is considered honorable or glorious enough to cause me to put my hand over my mouth when I have an opinion. We're a country of revilers. We're a country of blasphemers. But let us not simply point them out. 
those people out there because how often do we revile those who hold positions of the greatest glory in our nation? Aren't we also free in throwing out disrespectful comments about those who should be honored? And it is not mere disagreement that constitutes reviling, but the manner in which we disagree. There's much that a Christian should disagree with in relation to our rulers today. But in that disagreement, we should be marked by a reverence, a respect, and even a deference to those who hold positions of glory and honor, not only in our words, but in our hearts and attitudes. Remember Exodus twenty-two twenty-eight: you shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. But you say our rulers deserve to be cursed. And perhaps they do. But is it our place to render that judgment? If we claim to worship and serve a sovereign God, a God who is supreme over all beings, Lord Sabaoth, the ruler of principalities and powers, the supreme ruler of every rank of angelic being, then would we assume a rank that God has not assigned to us and revile those who are above us? That leads directly to our second distinguishing mark. These people rely on themselves, first of all. And second, these people ignore their proper place. They ignore their proper place. If you want to spot those who creep in unnoticed, look for a person who doesn't know their place. Now, if I were to pick a biblical example of someone who knew their place, I don't know what you guys would think. David's the first one who would come to my mind who kept saying, I will not touch the Lord's anointed. He says of Saul, far be it from me because of Yahweh that I should do this thing to my Lord, the anointed of Yahweh, to send forth my hand against him since he is the anointed of Yahweh. Or of Daniel who said, from the lion's den, O king, live forever. The God whom I serve delivered me. What deference, what respect he shows to the very king who threw him into the din. The king who made the corrupt law that sent him into the lion's den. But Jude has a different and more remarkable example. Michael. Michael, the archangel. So let's look at this stellar example of Michael. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Now, this event is not found in the Old Testament, but it's a perfect demonstration of knowing your proper place. Let's look at Michael. We'll do it in four parts. First, his identity. He is archangel and prince of Israel. Archangel and prince of Israel. He's given those titles in Daniel chapter 10, where we're first introduced to him. 
he is called one of the chief princes. And in that context, the prince refers to an angel, an angelic power. And then he's called your prince. That's to Daniel, and it's plural, meaning the prince of Israel. He is the angel over Israel. And in Revelation 12, Michael and his angels wage war against the dragon, and they defeat him. They overcome him, and he's cast out of heaven and sent down to earth. Dave Lample can tell you when exactly that occurs, but it happens. That's all we need to know for today. So in terms of authority, thinking of Michael, Oh, I'm sorry, also later on in Daniel chapter 12, he's called the great prince, the great prince. So in terms of authority, power, glory, among all the beings in this universe, it looks like Michael is top five. And that's if you count the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit individually. Michael is up there. He's glorious. He has massive authority. And he gets into an argument with the devil. Now, Michael's either taking the body of Moses and the devil tries to stop him, or the devil's taking the body of Moses and Michael's trying to stop him. We're not given those details. If you know your Old Testament, this should sound vaguely familiar because we're told in Deuteronomy 34 at the end of Moses' life this. Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land, Gilead as far as Dan. So, Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab according to the word of the Lord, and he buried him in the valley of the land of Moab opposite Beth Peor. But no one knows the location or the place of his burial to this day. Now that's how Deuteronomy ends. So Moses is buried by the Lord, but if you know the Lord, he doesn't dig holes. He sends his angels to do his work. He makes his ministers a flame of fire. So he sends out his angel to do this, apparently sending Michael out to bury Moses. And when Michael gets there, or something like this, we don't know all the details, the devil's there and says, oh, no, no, I'm going to bury him somewhere else. And that leads to his dispute. Number two, his dispute where Moses' body should be buried. Again, the details aren't what Jude's focused on here, but a basic overview looks something like this, that Michael's going out to bury the body just as the Lord told him, and the devil interposes and tries to stop him. So the Lord says to you, I want you to take this body and I want you to bury it in this tomb. And when you're there, someone opposes you and says, no, 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 we're not going to bury it here. We're going to bury it over there. What would you do? What would you say? Get behind me, Satan. <laughs> the Lord sent me on a mission. He told me I can do this. But look at what Michael's response is. 
he shows remarkable restraint. He dared not revile because of his place. Michael did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment. As high and as powerful and as glorious as Michael was, it was not his place to judge the devil. He didn't have rank. Now the ESV translates this cause, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment. The idea of presume there is what we would normally refer to as dare. Like, how dare you? Michael didn't dare revile the devil because it wasn't his place. Whatever position of authority, bringing this home to our own situations, whatever position of authority you have, however much power or glory you have today, I promise you it pales in comparison to Michael's. And however corrupt or crooked or wicked your leaders are, I promise they pale in comparison to the devil. And so we have a perfect extreme. Michael far more glorious than us. The devil far more wicked than our leaders. And what does Michael do? He doesn't dare pronounce judgment where it is not his. But our quick tongues pronounce reviling judgments far more often than they should. The Lord gives us a better way. He gives us the right way to respond to corruption in our leaders. And that's number four in Michael's speech. He respectfully appeals to the Lord. He respectfully appeals to the Lord. In the course of their argument, this was as far as Michael would go. He said, the Lord rebuke you. And even the way he phrases it, This is respectful. It's one of those rare uses of the optative mood, which is close to saying something like, may the Lord rebuke you, or I pray the Lord will rebuke you. He won't even pronounce the judgment. It's not my place to rebuke you, but I am confident that you are in error. So may the Lord rebuke you. What a perfect example Michael gives us in knowing our place, not reviling, showing respect to authority, even when that authority is wicked and unrighteous. Michael knew his proper place, but these unnoticed people who sneak in, they ignore their proper place. Look at the shocking contrast with Michael, their perverse behavior But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand. And they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Michael would not even revile the devil. But they revile whatever they don't understand. They revile whatever they don't understand. Now, in what universe does it make sense to revile something you don't understand? If you don't understand something, doesn't that suggest, perhaps, that you're not in a position to render judgment? But this goes back to the first point. 
what do they rely on? They don't rely on the truth. They rely on themselves. And so what doesn't make sense to them is automatically reviled because they view themselves as the great authority. Because they are their own ultimate authority, whatever they don't get, they revile. We've had a playful exchange with some of our kids who will sometimes say, that doesn't make sense. And I'm keen to have them say instead, I don't get that, or I don't understand that. To say the equation for gravitational force doesn't make sense is quite a bold claim. But to say, I don't understand the equation for gravitational force is to admit your weakness without making a judgment. But for these unnoticed people, if they don't understand something, then it cannot make sense. Because they rely on themselves, they must ignore their proper place, and that leads them to revile anything they don't understand. What a dangerous posture to have. And that leads to their destruction. Number two, they are corrupted by whatever they know. We have both whatevers emphasized. They revile whatever they don't understand. They're corrupted by whatever they know. What they don't understand, they revile, and what they think they understand leads to their own destruction. The destruction here has the picture of something being spoiled or ruined or corrupted. When you drop salt in your coffee instead of sugar, You've destroyed it. That's the image. The reason their knowledge destroys them is first because it's necessarily exclusive of anything they don't understand. But additionally, A, what they know with certainty are their instincts. What they know with certainty are their instincts. They understand instinctively instinctively or naturally or automatically we might say they understand based on their feelings how do you know that's not safe I just know I have a feeling that's similar to what's being said here it's an instinct I just know I just know and further be what they know I'm sorry I skipped a paragraph I need to say more about that God does give us instincts And I don't think it's wise to ignore those instincts. But our instincts aren't our authority. And our instincts can be dead wrong. These people elevate their instincts to the highest authority, to the highest form of knowledge, again trusting themselves and their own intuition rather than God's word. And so that leads to their corruption. Okay, then B, what they know, they know like unreasoning animals. They know like an unreasoning animal. These unnoticed people are like animals in that you cannot reason with them. Jude's brother James makes a similar point in James 3.17. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason. But these people cannot be reasoned with. 
When you speak to them and you use your words to correct or instruct them, it doesn't sink in. It won't change them. Just like when you try talking to your animal, your pet. You can't reason with a bird that got stuck in your house. You, you can't argue with him and explain to him why it's safe for him to leave through the door. The bird knows by instinct that you're trying to kill it. And so every time you try to pick it up, it flies away. It lives by its instinct. That's why they're ruined, because the very thing that could save them, they're cut off from receiving, because they reject anything they don't understand. Much more could be said, but we need to move on. These people who have crept in unnoticed can be noticed by their reliance on themselves their disregard for their proper place. As Peter says, they are bold and willful. They do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. They rely on themselves. They ignore their proper place. And third, these people follow wicked models. In these last three verses, we're going to move quickly. We just don't have time to unpack all the richness in these verses, but we'll at least cover them quickly. Jude compares these people to three Old Testament villains. First, in the path of Cain, they travel. In the path of Cain, they travel. That's the path they're following. Cain was Adam's firstborn son. You can read about him in Genesis 4. Cain relied on himself when he brought an offering to the Lord, and so the Lord had no regard for it. But Cain's brother Abel relied on the Lord and in faith brought an offering that the Lord accepted. This angered Cain, and when the Lord tried to reason with Cain, Cain was not open to reason, but instead went and killed Abel. And then the Lord spoke to Cain again and cursed him, and Cain went out away from the Lord. That's the path of Cain, away from the Lord. These people travel in the same path that Cain did, away from the Lord's presence. Second, in the error of Balaam, they are wasted. In the error of Balaam, they're wasted or destroyed, poured out. Balaam was a prophet. He was an oracle, and he truly spoke from God, but he was not righteous. Although he knew that God's blessing was on Israel, he was enticed to curse Israel by Balak because Balak dangled a big sack of gold in front of him. But he wasn't able to curse Israel. God wouldn't let him. And after he tried three times and failed every time, he then took Balak aside and said, here's how you can get him. He told Balak to use their women to lure them into worshiping other gods. And this is the rebellion at Peor where the Lord wiped out many of the Israelites because of their sin. This is Balaam. So when Israel fought the Midianites, they killed their five kings and along with them, they killed Balak. He was a wicked man. These people are wasted. They're poured out in the same air as Balaam. For the sake of gain, they defile the flesh and teach God's people to do what they ought not to do. Third, in the rebellion of Korah, they are ruined or destroyed. 
ruined. Korah relied on himself. He ignored his proper place and he rose up before Moses with 250 other men. And we're told in Numbers, they assembled themselves together against God and against Aaron. And they said to them, you have gone too far, Moses, for all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourself above the assembly of the Lord? So the Lord answered Korah in a new way, and he caused the earth to open. The earth opened its mouth and swallowed them with their households and all the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods. These people are just like Korah and they perish in Korah's rebellion. Those are the wicked models they follow. Those are the heroes of their faith, Cain, Balaam, and Korah. These unnoticed people rely on themselves, ignore their proper place, follow wicked models, and finally, number four, these people are not what they claim. They are not what they claim. These people rely on themselves because they think so highly about themselves. Jude says in verse 16, they're loudmouth boasters. And in these final two verses, Jude takes directly on their boasts and he turns their boasts into insults. He turns what they claim to be their strength into their true character, which is destruction. They claim to be rocks, but A, in reality, they are hidden rocks or hidden reefs at your love feasts. It's no mystery what a danger a hidden rock is when you're in a ship. The rocks you can see are easy to avoid. The ones that are dangerous are the ones that are hidden. They're hidden rocks. They're hidden reefs that you don't see. Some of your translations might say blemishes. The the idea is the same. If you look at an ocean, you see blemishes in the blue. Those are the rocks. That's the reef. It's the same idea there. In the ocean, a blemish is a rock. So they're hidden rocks, hidden reefs at your love feasts. Uh, uh, Number one, they eat among you without fear. They gather with us at our love feasts which is probably something like a glorified church potluck with communion at the center. Don't know for sure. But they come to those, they eat with us without fear. In reality, they're like shepherds who only feed themselves. They claim to be rocks. They claim to be pillars, shepherds, but they only feed themselves. Next, they claim to be powerful clouds of the sky. But in reality... They're waterless clouds. They're waterless clouds pushed and pulled by air. That's how powerful they are. They speak loud boasts, threatening in the sky, but they're really waterless clouds, fakes of no use, no benefit. Nothing but air sweeps them along, pulls them to and fro. They claim, third, to be mighty trees of the forest, but in reality, they're fruitless trees. Fruitless trees uprooted and twice dead. In late autumn, at the end of the harvest, when all chance of harvest is past, they have no fruit. They're dead. And so they're pulled up, roots and all, to make room for a new tree in the orchard. 
And so they're dead again, twice dead. Next, they claim to be strong waves of the sea, but in reality, they're wild waves, wild waves, foaming up their own shame. They're wild waves, unpredictable, falling apart, frothing, at the fo- frothing up their foam, and all that's left of them as they fall into the sea is the foam that rests on the surface of their own shame. They're nothing. Finally, they claim to be glorious stars, but in reality, they are wandering stars, wandering stars, and headed to ultimate darkness. They have no glory like true stars, but are planets that wander. They follow a different path for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever as they wander into the dark abyss of gloom and blackness. It's like they're headed out to space with nothing before them to go on forever. Despite their loud boasts and confident assertions, these people are not what they claim and they will be destroyed in due time. This is how we can identify those who creep in unnoticed and contend for the faith through the purity of the church. These people rely on themselves. They ignore their proper place. They follow wicked models and are not what they claim. I hope this prepares us to spot such people, but also that it would guard us against these behaviors in our own hearts. Let's pray. Lord of lords and King of kings, help us to know and to keep our proper place. Help us not to rely on our own wisdom, but to rely on every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Pray that you would protect this body from such people and you would protect us from becoming such people. May we be like Michael, knowing his place relying on you to repay at the proper time. We ask in the name of our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.